Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. He's a founder that has done it multiple times. You know, he actually took his last company public. So we're gonna find you know his journey quite inspiring. But again, I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nathan Harding. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So born in Midland, Texas. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? <laughs> so I don't really remember anything about Midland. I left there uh, after two years, but I do remember a lot about growing up in Houston. And, uh, you know, we were way out in the suburbs and I basically played in this area near Buffalo Bio all the time. So I, I got kind of uh, almost like a Cajun upbringing, though that would that would make my California mother crazy to hear me say that. <laughs> And how how do you get how do you how do you got into you know the whole thing of engineering and and problem solving and robotics and how did that come about? You know, it was just like a natural obsession. It was something I never could have stopped. I started uh, when I was a little kid, just taking everything apart and fixing anything I could find broken and you know, building mini bikes and go-karts and that kind of thing. And, um, and you know, when I heard of what mechanical engineering was, I was like, well, that's me. That's what I want to do. So uh, 
I, you know, kind of found out where were good schools to go do that and, and started applying. So you went to uh, Carnegie uh, to uh, do your undergrad. And then after that, you did, uh, you know, some stints there, you know, with some robotics uh, startups. So at what point did you decide that it's time to go to Berkeley and do the grad? Well, I think when I exited Carnegie Mellon, I, I still felt like there were missing pieces. Like I was extremely focused. Like I really wanted to know exactly how to design machines. And I wanted all the academic part of that as well as the practical part. And I felt like I still didn't have all the academic part that I wanted. Um, so I applied to Berkeley about, I don't know, a year a year and a half after getting out of Carnegie Mellon, I went back to school. So then you go back to school and you go to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, out of all places. Uh, and uh, definitely, you know, there, you know, what a pivotal, you know, moment that uh, you see. I mean, I guess pivotal, you know, influential, everything that you can think of, because not only you got, you know, your degree there, but then also it kind of like gave you the push with your next thing, you know, with you, with one of your companies. Now, and we'll get there in just a little bit, but right after grad school, you know, basically you went into uh, one, of the, one of the companies there uh, that uh, was not that far off, and you actually worked for that company for 10 years. What kept you for so long? Well, it was an amazing opportunity. The company was called Berkeley Process Control, and they'd done an amazing job of hiring just brilliant people. Like that was the one core competency that company had that always worked. So it was a brilliant team of people and they were making machine controllers. Um, and some of their customers, they were telling their customers like, hey, you should try to build the machine like this. And their customers would say, will you build the machine for us? And so I was the first gearhead, you know, the mechanical uh, person that they brought on to do that. And so I had a really great opportunity to to form a team uh, of mechanical design engineers and mechanical designers to do that work, uh, and it was really successful. We went on a tear for a long time. So then, what got you to go back to UC Berkeley? Well, um, the what the equipment that we ended up manufacturing was mainly optical fiber manufacturing equipment. And the bottom fell out of the optical fiber market. In fact, it fell for us even before that because 80% of our business was to uh, one customer and they they had an accounting scandal. Uh, and so we we went dead a little bit before everyone else went dead. And you, you literally couldn't sell anything. In capital equipment, you know, demand is almost like a square wave. It's like when they're growing, it's like, give me every single thing you've got. And then when they stop when they put the brakes on they actually start to repair their machines with parts from their other machines so so you can't even sell a spare part you know so it, it kind of went belly up my team dispersed i uh i talked to my old advisor back at uc berkeley he was still doing human exoskeletons which he had been working on while i was there and i uh you know i i I got talked into going into the lab. In fact, he he bribed me in by time. He had 3D printers at the time, which in 2003 was really rare. And so I really wanted some time on those printers for some things I was doing. And so we did an exchange and he wanted to bring in consultants and mix them with students and see what would happen. 
And uh, he was right. As soon as I brought in some of my old team, we started to have breakthroughs, and that was the genesis of exobionics. So how did the exobionics come knocking? How did that happen? Well, we had a, you know, we the, the real bogey and the only people funding exoskeletons at the time was really DARPA in the U.S., and it was all defense stuff for load carriage. And the real barrier everyone was seeing was like, how do we how do we provide enough power to these exoskeletons? You know, like because you couldn't carry enough batteries to power the thing. And um, we had a you know we had a breakthrough that allowed us to make the exoskeletons use much less power than had ever been dist- demonstrated before. And and so that you know, all of a sudden it was like, wow, maybe you really can make a business around exoskeletons. And so we, uh, you know, we, we incorporated and we started to get a lot of grants, both from DARPA and uh, NIST and some other government organizations. You know, there's a lot of uh, founders that, uh, that are listening that are really used to raising money from VCs and how does it work, really? You know, the, the the whole thing around grants. How do you get one, and what's the process of getting one? Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of grants, and there's a cycle where they they publish the the ones the the topics that they want explored, and um, you know, the easiest ones to get are ones called STTR grants, where you team with an institution. So if you know any professor at a at a top institution like UC Berkeley, you team with them, and that and that those are the ones that are really the highest hit rate. Um, and and then you get uh, you get the money in various phases over time. And back back then, you could make it add up to one point five or two million dollars if you got through all the phases. But the thing that's the tricky part about it is you have to make something that 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 is actually going to be good for your business fit into their topic and that's where it can get really tricky because sometimes you can find yourselves doing things that you know aren't necessarily on the critical path of your company and you're just doing it because they provide another million dollars right now in this case you know with exobionics for the people that are listening to really get it what ended up being the business model? How were you guys making money there? We did a great licensing deal early on with Lockheed Martin to do the to do the military exoskeletons, and we got to a we got to a pretty great demo with uh, Natick Soldier Center that did a study, and uh, we had with some soldiers we were really doing well on their metrics, and some soldiers we weren't. We kind of we kind of like increased the standard deviation of the differences of load carriage. And at that point, the Army was getting cold feet about how much they wanted to keep looking into exoskeletons. And fortunately, we had been doing grants in the medical area at the time, and we we had our first medical exoskeleton up and running right about that same time. So we pivoted to that, and we created a human exoskeleton that, you know, you could easily strap on to patients of multiple sizes and it could do a, a variable amount of assist so that you could handle people who were either completely paralyzed or, or you know, barely paralyzed. 
um, and and get them up and walking. And what was the uh, the journey of raising money for for the company? How much money did you guys raise prior to taking the company public? Um, prior to taking the company public, we probably raised, especially if you count the non dilutive capital of the um, of the grants and the Lockheed Martin contract. Um, I would say we we raised something near forty million dollars, probably. Going public, we raised thirty. And then I soon thereafter raised another 26 and then another 15. So we started to really uh, get money because at that time we were, you know, we were gearing up to be a real medical uh, manufacturer, a medical device manufacturer, which is it's a very costly game. You know, at EXO, it was it was a. I would say it was a tough road raising money, and uh, I had a CFO who was very innovative and really helped, and we did all kinds of different ways to raise money. Um, you know, in fact, our largest investor for a long time was Chickasaw Nation Industries, which was definitely not the you know typical Sand Hill Road uh, VC. Um, I'd say it's it's really difficult in general to to finance hardware startups and so it led us to be uh really scrappy and and in fact in going public we did it through an old-fashioned reverse merger not not one of these like glorious SPACs you hear about now but um w just a, a reverse merger into an empty shell um and uh you know that that really worked and we were able to raise a lot of money. I, I mean, and I think we, we really gave it a, a good run. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone it's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, what makes it so difficult to raise money for hardware uh, companies? Well. You know, the VCs know that the timelines are longer. I mean, there's no 
There's no way that I can say that uh, you can have a a startup like a Facebook or a something like that happen in the in the hardware world because you can you know I remember Skype it was like when they were valued at three billion dollars I think there were like nine people or something you know it was something crazy like that it can happen very quickly very small teams uh, in the software world and so. Um, the VCs all want to find those, uh, you know, those software unicorns that go so fast. And so I don't fault them for looking for that, but I do fault them for, you know, especially the smaller VCs. I mean, the best deals in the, in the software game are, you know, they go to the, they go to the top VCs by reputation uh, and then there's kind of a halo of, of VCs connected to those. And I, I think it's it's a little foolish when I see that some smaller, like peripheral VCs who can't really get the great deals don't think that they could do better with hardware startups. But they they keep working on the exact same things as the as the big VCs do. So I think that um I think that there's a lot of money to be had by uh, by uh, VCs that can really invest in hardware uh, properly and find the right deals. It just takes a little longer. I mean, obviously, what a remarkable journey. The company uh, that speak, you know, in the market cap, it hit 600 million plus. So uh, really amazing. But as always, you know, for you, it came to a point where it was time to turn page. And the uh, turning page, you know, came with, making some phone calls to the people that uh, that were very smart that you know, and uh, that uh, ended up, you know, with a very unique industry that maybe you would have not imagined that you would land in. So who did you call and what happened out of those conversations? So I, I called, uh, I, I was calling old advisors of mine and I called a, a, a brilliant advisor of mine who's, who was a brilliant marketing guy and who was like retiring at 48 or something like that. And I was like, Juan, you know, what are you going to do with yourself? And he tells me, well, I just bought a franchise region of Amazing Lash Studios. And, you know, I almost fell out of my chair. It was one of the more uh, shocking things I'd ever heard because I was, I frankly, I was the typical dumb guy. I had no clue how great the beauty business was, had no clue how big it was. Um, and you know, the kind of the, uh, the regulation environment, how great that was. I didn't know any of that, you know? And so I was like, wow, here's this guy, brilliant guy I know telling me he's going into beauty salons and he starts telling me like, oh, it's great. There's this recurring revenue and it's exploding. And, and I was like, but I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what is a lash extension? And he describes to me the process of putting on eyelash extensions where you glue one little lash at a time on and it takes, you know, a couple hours to do an appointment. And I immediately joke with him like, hey, that sounds like a great job for a robot. And he he laughed and I laughed, you know, it was totally meant to be a joke. And then, you know, two days later, I remembered this conversation and I thought, ah, you know, I'm going to look at that on YouTube. And I went and I looked at people doing it on YouTube. And I was like, man, I think this is a killer app for robotics. I mean, it looks perfect. So what did it look like from there? What, what happened next? 
So the immediate thing I wanted to do was figure out, like, is this a market? Would women let robots be near their eyes? All these things, because I didn't know anything about uh, beauty. And I went to some friends of mine who uh, had a successful ad and branding agency in the city, and I traded equity for them to give me a team. And uh, they gave me a team lead in Rachel Gold, who's now co-founder and CMO of Loom because she got so addicted to the idea. And we started doing focus groups. Uh, and, you know, we do focus groups where we'd hold a big machine mock-up over someone in a lounge chair, you know, and ask people, like, you, what do they think that this would intimidate them? You know, what? And, and these things... And, and, you know, we fa- we started to learn a lesson that I've learned so many times on this adventure is that women are just braver than men about all this stuff, number one. Uh, and so women love the idea. Uh, when I talk to men, they'd be like, oh, my God, I don't know about that, right? Um, and we also learned, we did salon owner interviews, and we found that there was a huge labor shortage, and they were just tearing their hair out trying to train and retain people. And we also found out that it's it, it's like it, the one of the reasons I love this app for robotics is it's literally right at the edge of human capability. So a lot of people who train to do it end up giving up because it's so hard. Uh, and I love that. I love an application that's, you know, right at that edge of human ability because I don't really l- like the aspect of like just replacing people. I, li- I like to augment humans. Um, and that's that's essentially what we decided to do was augment these lash artists and give them a really fast tool to do the bulk of the lashes. So then for the people that are listening to get it, what is the business model? How do you guys make money? Uh, so what we do is uh, we deploy our machines into third parties, uh, stores like um, our you know first uh, strategic partners are Ulta Beauty and Benefit Cosmetics. Um, and, you know, we charge them $62,000 when we deliver the machine. And then we are going to charge them $51 each time they run a full set of lashes and $24 each time they do a, uh, a refill of lash extensions. And, and that, uh, that works out with fantastic economics for both us and them. Both, both entities see a payback on the machine in about six months. Um, and then, you know, it just, it just goes from there. And then what they also see that they love is a very addictive service that's in their store and keeps bringing those customers back because, because of course, when those customers are back in their stores, they buy other things. Now, in this case, you know, how much capital have you guys raised to date and what have you done differently about the capital raising, you know, efforts based on what you know already with a prior company? So uh, we raised uh, about 15 million so far. Um, like all hardware startups, it's been a hard go, but we've done it, uh, I would say, in uh, much more mainstream ways. We did not do any grants. I mean, I guess you, some people suggested that because we're doing this fine manipulation, we could have couched some of this into a, a research grant. But I I did not want the distraction of of grants in this business. So 
Um, so we've mo- mainly financed it with uh, VCs and a lot of angels. And we've also, you know, dabbled in the crowdfunding world as well. Now, for something like this, you know, when, when it came to, to Loom, I mean, how do you guys think about perhaps guaranteeing safety? Yeah, so that was a big thing right in the beginning is like we didn't want to do anything where we could actually hurt someone and we we're working right near their eyes. So this is really the, you know, the big factor. And and what we what we ended up doing was a paradigm we call gorilla in a box where the the machine is a big steel box and there's a bunch of fast robotics in there. But none of them can reach the client. None of that can reach the client. There's a little window where the client's face is presented to the robotics. And the only thing that can physically reach through that um, window are these little featherweight tools. And we call them featherweight because they're literally like the weight of a feather. And those tools we attach to the robotics with just tiny little magnets. So if you were to go up to our machine and you bump those tools with your finger, they just fall off. So, so you can imagine that ends up with a system that uh, it doesn't matter what happens in the box. It can't hurt the client below. And that's what we really wanted was something inherently safe that just, you know, couldn't, couldn't produce an, an injury if it wanted to. Like. And what does it look like when you're applying AI on stuff like this? Well, we use a lot of AI um, and we we use it for image processing and looking at images and telling us very specific things. Like a great example is like looking at an image of the eye and drawing a line right where the eyelid line is. Um, and, and, and that's really pretty easy for uh for a neural network, the data set that you train the neural network with, the, the set of images that you show it to, to learn, it doesn't have to be that large. Um, but if you try to do it with classical techniques, I can tell you it's a nightmare because that's what we do is we always do it at first with classical techniques, and then we use that to build data, and then we train a neural network, and then we replace the classical techniques with the neural networks. And what's funny is when we were doing classical techniques on that particular problem, uh, people would come in with uh, permanent eyeliner that's been tattooed on the on their lid line, and we just couldn't we couldn't deal with it. Like in the, with the old school classical techniques, we just couldn't deal with it at all. And you get enough data, and you train a neural network, and the neural network has no problem at all. It knows right where the lid line is, regardless of of what tattooing they have on their eyelids or not. So imagine you go to sleep tonight, Nathan, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Loom is fully realized. What does that world look like? It means that there's a global brand called Loom that stands for you know, the cutting edge of, uh, of beauty services and, and automated beauty services in particular, and that there's loom machines, um, that can give me great lashes, whether I get them in Dayton, Ohio, or wherever I get them in Paris, I can get the same lash, great lashes, and I can get them super fast and have a great experience while I do it. I love it. Now, let me, let me ask you something now. 
towards the past because we're talking about the future here. So let's say we put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that moment where you had just uh, returned to UC Berkeley and, and you were there at the lab, you know, just playing with stuff. And let's say you were able to go there and enter the room and have a sit down with your younger self and being able to whisper to your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why you know what you know now? Maybe make it simple. <laughs> I think that um, uh, a lot of us entrepreneurs, we think that we have to create something entirely new and entirely different. Um, and, you know, it's hard enough to make a successful business anyway. Um, so I think that you want to, you, you want to pick things and, and I'm kind of the opposite of this in a lot of ways is you want to pick things that are, that are, uh, that seem easy at first, because the truth is everything is hard, right? Um, and, uh, you, if you pick something hard, then you've, you've made it even harder, right? So, so that might be it, um. I, cause I see that with a lot of entrepreneurs in robotics in particular, uh, where, you know, they want to develop a brand new arm to do an application. And I'm always like, well, why don't you just buy a robot arm and go do that application and really, uh, figure it out, become a service provider, you know, simplify what you're trying to do. Um, so I think, I think that might be it. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Nathan, that would love to reach out and say hi. Where's the best way for them to do so? Um, you can uh, contact me on LinkedIn. Um, I think that that's the best way. Uh, nowadays, I'm not the fastest at LinkedIn, but uh, I will get back to you. Amazing. Well, hey, Nathan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Great. It's been an honor to be here. Thanks very much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.